0: This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Acme. Welcome, everybody, um, to the first session of the day, and I think the first session of AIDC. Um, this is the most exciting day on the AIDC agenda, in my opinion, so I'm really pleased to see you all here. Um, it is fantastic to have someone like Robin coming to speak to us today. Robin is one of the most well-regarded uh, XR producers in working in globally today, so we're really, really lucky to have him. Um, I'll just tell you a little bit about Robin, and then I'll invite him to the stage. And as I say, please ask questions through the app, and I'll be um, calling on you later for about um, about half an hour. We'll have a Q&A at the end of the um, presentation. So, co-founder and creative director of the award-winning creative studio Marshmallow Laser Feast, Robin has directed a myriad of XR experiences, large scale scale installations and live performances. Marshmallow Laser Feast is a London-based experiential studio working at the intersection of technology, art and science. Always looking to create experiences that immerse and amaze audiences in unexpected ways, MLF employs a wealth of creative disciplines from photoreal virtual reality to robotic performance and real-time mapping to push boundaries, redefine expectations, and excite audiences worldwide. So here to excite us, I'd like to invite Robin McNicholas to the stage.
1: (laughs) That is quite an introduction. Thank you very much for having me here. Firstly, just to clear things up, under the uh, title of Master and XR Extraordinaire, or have you? I represent a, a collective. I represent a, a, a group of very, very talented uh, producers, uh, fundraising experts, <laughs> um, as well as um, a, a creative team that have been involved uh, for a number of years. So, I, I'm represent a part of the industry that relies on the, the team in the hive mind. Uh, it's very much an individual here, but we're, we're a collective. I'm going to give you a kind of overview of what, what we're doing and try and explain a bit about this XR scene that's emerging. I also want to talk about some of the troubles there that we've been faced with, that the scene is faced with on a whole. And it's going to be an experiment in time management as well, because I've got a heck of a lot of slides to get through. By the end of it, I hope that you'll get some sense of what we're driven to, um, to do. Some, a better sense, some of you probably are uh, practitioners in this, this field, but um, exposing some of the audience trends and, and, and different behaviors and opportunities. And as well as that, um, Exposing just new, fresh snow, uh, new ways of of telling stories that are uh, applied uh, definitely to the documentary sector, even though uh, from my standpoint, we we stand aside from that. But I'm hoping that you'll be able to pick out relevant aspects just from a storytelling perspective. So this overview, if if the... uh, Yeah, here we go. Our background is traditionally TV and film, but we went very quickly into light installations and live music. And so lots of the work that you see behind me is um, multidisciplinary in terms of working with technology, like um, very clever creative coders and robotics experts, as well as... um, uh, Effectively having a primary focus on, uh, on, on visual, real-time interactive visual, um, live experiences. And this really has, um, it's, it's surfaced in all kinds of different ways. And it's quite hard to make sense of if you see it as a collection of work there. Um, but, but what I've done is tried to break it down and um, ultimately, much like this guy here, uh, our uh, addiction is to just get an authentic response out of the audiences. That's, that's what we're driven to do. Um, like I mentioned, TV and film originally was my training and I met lots of the team. Our studio manager is um, from, from film art department, our finance officer, again, is from the film industry. And the industry, um, that we're in at the moment requires that kind of expertise where people just have to think on their feet. And um, what's different is we've been catering for things, mostly in a three-dimensional context. So less about a 2D screen, pulling things out of the screen, in fact, into the, the, the live space. And what's interesting is there's new storytelling techniques uh, to employ in this space, um, effectively, we can start to really celebrate the cl- cross-pollination of industries. So the emergence of the web, computer games, uh, theater, film, music, architecture and design. There's all of these crossover points, which is where we kind of lift from. And lots of the teams that we build, because each, each project is different with a bespoke team, it tends to be. And so we, we compose these teams in an effort to create a live experience from a real crossover. and this What's made our work um, feel internally interesting is that each time we're engaging in the work, uh, we're working with experts in a field that generally we, we know nothing about and as a result we're learning uh, everybody on the team is learning a load and that does something it really as well as the unique audience experiences that we've started to recognize in, in moving people in, uh, in ways using immersive tech. Um, there's also this sense of like, geez, I never in a thousand years would be, imagine that I'd be working with a, a food expert or a crystal expert or, or what have you. Um, along the way, we've, we've been involved in this term XR, we've been involved in lots of VR, AR um, experiences, Generally, they've involved physical interfaces in a live live element and increasingly, they're shared experiences. Originally, through technological constraints, these were quite solitary experiences, but we've always recognized that we can connect people. And most recently, we're interested in connecting people free from the constraints of... of geography, um, you can connect audiences in different ways with, with wonderful things like the internet. Along the way, <clears throat> what our primary goal is to to do in, is to um, promote and um, get our own IP out there into the world. And projects like In the Eyes of the Animal, Tree Hugger, um, A Colossal Wave, and Sweet Dreams are projects that. Uh, are living ecosystems, they're story worlds, where we have built them and toured them and taken them to, they tend to show their face at film festivals first, Um, but then they find other, they reach other cultural institutions generally. And um, I'll break those down a bit more in a little while. However, in terms of funding, there's some, mad old things uh, to, to contend with, mainly just um, financing these projects. It's so difficult. And um, what's, what we found ourselves doing um, is straddling two horses, basically. We work commercially as commercial directors, and we work um, dedicated for our IP as well. And generally, the commercial, ho- the commercial horse Feeds the arts horse, and um, with this, it's not all bad though. Um, what we've learned with, from doing all these kind of insane commercials is firstly to deal with people under really high pressure. Um, I don't know if anyone's worked in the ad world, but you're dealing with a lot of um, uh, you, you're dealing with a lot of tense uh, 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 egos and, and things like that. Um, but also, what we've tried to do is choose the commercial projects in a way that will benefit the team internally. Whether that's just financial benefit, that, that doesn't necessarily um, sit well. It needs to uh, either build us a tool or connect us to a new entity or introduce us to a new way of, of thinking. And so, we, we straddle these two horses carefully. Um, and we by no means have got the perfect model, it's just how we've ended up operating. So the the projects tend to involve a live element, as I mentioned, more often than not they're multi-sensory, so things beyond just audio-visual, and um, immersive storytelling. Now, in terms of immersive storytelling, uh, this is a real challenge, because we're learning on the job as well. Um, sometimes these are incredibly simple narratives. Um, in other uh, guises, we're really trying to push how to tell branching narratives and things like that. Um, but I think, like breaking things down into categories, the immersive so- storytelling aspect is, is really quite curious. Just the other day, we were talking about how to tell, how, how to deliver music without any, any sound through people's feet, and it was it was a nice thought experiment, really, about removing people's shoes, their socks, and playing music through different sensory <laughs> robotics and things like that. And it's uh, it's often um, in these small conversations that seem quite preposterous that they they actually work their way into the experiences. Um, so this experiential aspect or XR. XR is this umbrella that is is, um, being used at the moment. It'll probably change, but um, it kind of always involves this notion of mixed reality. And so with mixed reality, this exposes some really nice potential when we're dealing with physical and virtual, basically. And I think that this is one aspect that... Uh, separates the XR scene to any other in in that we can really play with this liminal space. And that has really supercharged us and we're very, very excited about um, the prospects of telling stories where things that manifest virtually can then cross over into a physical manifestation. It's really quite a curious field. There's a few key examples of audience trends and with that, some really interesting articles emerging. In the States, Meow Wolf are causing ripples. They have, um, in true American style, um, amounted or an inordinate amount of um, investor money to roll out their experiences throughout the States and beyond. Uh, Meow Wolf has the backing of George R.R. R. Martin. So from a narrative standpoint, they, uh, George R.R. R. Martin wrote Game of Thrones and... Um, what I think, why I think they're an interesting entity, is um, that they're thinking about a mixed reality experience. They're thinking about the experiential um, site-specific um, shows that take place. Originally in Santa Fe, uh, they converted a, um, a bowling alley that people visited, and we were lucky to visit the, the site last year as part of a research mission. And what was extraordinary was the range in age, ethnicity, and generally just a varied background that, is, um, that was so different to the traditional XR uh, posse that tend to be at events uh, like like this or film festivals or, um, or places like GDC, the uh, gaming developer um, uh, scene as well. Other entities like TeamLab who uh, have emerged from Japan are creating experiential, um, ticketed-based megaliths uh, that are causing ripples as well. And what I think we share with these... um, Mega entities, there's like 500 people that work at Team Lab, I think, and similar for um, for Meow Wolf. We're different in that there's 15 uh, people at MLF. But we are all interested, I think, in storytelling. Um, and at this point in time, I think we're on the first rung. I think that from a documentary standpoint, if you look at the stories uh, that are presented here, um, uh, the, the, uh, the immersive sector is presenting things that totally pale in, uh, in comparison, basically, because um, we're on that first rung. But that's not to say that the trajectory is, is um, uh, a superficial one. I think where things are going, there's more opportunities for telling stories in the experiential space. That said, just as a counter-argument, there's places like the Museum of Ice Cream. I just want to throw this out on, on people's radars in that as part of Insta culture in a reflection of our own culture, there's, there's entities like this um, emerging where people buy a ticket and uh, photograph themselves against um, uh, colourful backgrounds. And so you, you, you pay like... Hang on. Thirty-eight dollars for the pleasure um, to um, photograph oneself in a um, in a coronavirus-free um, a swimming pool of uh, hundreds and thousands, um, and it's just it's just curious because on the one hand you can you can just uh, palm this off as as just frivolous um, nonsense, but in fact. Um, it's still saying something about society. And uh, there's another... um, What is this called? I think it's called the Museum of Colour. Um, The Colour Factory, I beg your pardon, yeah. So the Colour Factory uh, is £35 a ticket, A 1,000 people rocking up a day. Um, um, And at this stage, there's really nice techniques being gleaned from this, user flow, how to onboard people, um, how to create a meaningful experience for people when, when they buy a, t- a ticket. Um, they, they won't last if it, it just stays as a nice photogenic backdrop or you know, effectively like a seaside cutout where you put your face through. Um, they, I think, will uh, mature into, into spaces where really quite compelling stories will emerge, and I think that that uh, is an exciting prospect. Uh, from a design perspective, um, art departments and things like that can can really go to town. And, and uh, from uh, an MLF position, we see this and think, well, crikey, there's some really nice textural things that we can, we can do with the physical element of this. That said, I'd encourage people to read the Existential Void of the Pop-Up Experience, an article written last year, I think, last year, in the New York Times. Um, It's a scathing scathing review of these, but I stick by that there's something bubbling away, and, and I'm curious about it, and the fact that there are multiple Um, entities emerging it just says something about user behavior and people that are making stuff, creative outlets for things in a live context, a ticketed context um, is is a way of uh, making a living but also it exposes that people are having to think extra hard about catering for uh, visitors to events and, and things like that outside of the home, you know, we have Wikipedia at home, we have Spotify at home, we have Netflix. And effectively, so much is catered for indoors, what uh, are people going to do outdoors to um, uh, to, to engage audiences. Our process, I'll, I'll rattle through a bit because I've um, got one eye on the time. Our process comes from inspiration, now from, from um, my own perspective. I, I've drawn inspiration from um, from web culture and art on the web for a long time. Um, people like Press Tube. Um, Press Tube emerged um, as part of the early Flash scene and is an entity that uh, whose work, effectively, it's all hand-drawn stop-frame animation, but. Press tubes work was the first work that I saw in the early two thousands that kind of broadcasted that look this creative expression that um, can be um, celebrated in a, in a digital context. So um, this was a you know this was at a time when the web was just so mundane it was like. Um, it was literally pre-Google and, uh, and so you'd just see text and very basic um, uh, text on a screen. But when PressTube emerged and, and the way the images, uh, you could kind of main vein directly into his brain, uh, James Patterson, and uh, that really got me early. And I think that uh, the the creative expression that is celebrated online is one of the, the big driving forces that inspires us, um, even now. And, and it's obviously snowballed with things like Instagram and so on. But so has the literacy. Now, PressTube said this, the VR headset is the segue for the face. And honestly, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Despite us involving uh, technology in all of our work, we're very skeptical about um, the zeitgeist of technology. And there, again, we're just enjoying being part of the conversation for now and observing where it's going. In a similar way to James Patterson uh, celebrating the internet in its infancy, he was not interested in the technology, he was interested in the creative outlet. And that is the same as MLF. We're just interested in the means of expressing ourselves. There's also inspiration that you can tap into online, such as all the data. (laughs) And so uh, the natural world inspires us, but it's just extraordinary how quickly research can be carried out online. And so things like this, where you start to learn a little bit about um, us as human beings represented as biomass um, this, this, this particular document um, I think there's the same biomass of chickens as there are any other bird and there's the same amount of termites as there are human beings in terms of biomass and it's just weird arbitrary angles that uh, reflect into our studio that um, that are seeds of inspiration. And so this, it, it's a zigzagging path that we've taken. And so, um, th- this is another example. Just uh, I-, I was reflecting on this this morning thinking, jeez, I've not even seen this film. Why am I privy to this image? It's kind of burned into, uh, into my retinas. Um, but I've not seen the film. I've seen uh, Jan... Arthur Bertrand's book on the coffee tables of, uh, you know, of hotels all over the place. It's the aerial photography book. Um, But I was reflecting this morning thinking, crikey, this is a real web culture short attention span thing of me to do, to, to latch on to just a fragment of a film. And I question the attention span, and I question... Um, our internal studio's uh, attention span, but honestly, I- in this kind of setting, they, these fragments still serve as inspiration. I-, I find it fascinating that we often revisit this, this particular clip and we talk about the Great Garbage Vortex in the Pacific and we talk about um, all kinds of things just from a fragment extracted from the internet that then snowballs into something quite different and I find that quite interesting about how culture operates today so yeah the internet uh, rocks I stuck this in this morning as well which was for the love of God unmute this I don't know if the uh, if it's playing or for the love of God unmute this 15 seconds, but to get any chuckle, what I found absolutely fascinating about this is that, well, firstly, we need to understand what an iPhone is. We need to understand how weird it is for an otter to be in a house, what's an otter doing in a house. There's this complexity within this 15 seconds that is a product of the internet culture, that is just our our global audiovisual literacy. Is just so refined that we can build stories out of nothing um, in, in such a short time frame. It's extraordinary. And so um, conversations about uh, the attention span, conversations about how we engage in the world is interesting. And what we've learned is that part of that new way of communicating, latching onto technology, is we can use multi sensory aspects to main vein too and dial into that. Uh, visual vocabulary, dial into the hive mind. I'm going to rattle through these approaches. Essentially, um, we have our idea. We have a multi-departmental filter that is then put into the production that ultimately ends in the live experience. But there's all kinds of feedback loops that go on. And it's extraordinary how um, internally we have this engine that just constantly critiques... Um, usually the, the, the crit sessions are brutal as well. where our own critics um, and, and generally are making work for each other. That, that's how MLF operates. And um, generally what we've learned is that it should be holistic. It should be, um, it, it, we should embrace the fact that everything is connected now. All these cross-disciplinary opportunities are there, so lighting departments can speak to, sound departments much more, that in turn can speak to, the projection department, and the projection department can utilize all the new tools that have emerged from the computer game industry. Uh, we, we don't even play computer games, but we use the tools to create computer games all the time. And what's interesting is that the technical input often inf- informs the creative, and the creative often informs the technical, there's a lot of cross-pollination going on. Uh, Recently we've been working with the BFI, over the last three years we've been working for them, and what's extraordinary there is that developing narratives with uh, the BFI, the British Film Institute, is useful for us because we're learning tons about how to properly create narrative, how to build characters, how to work in a traditional script, writing in a script writing way, and at the same time being torn apart on, on the stories that we present. But in exchange, we, uh, we um, share new ideas of how we'd, uh, we'd take traditional conventions and reappropriate them for the experiential. And so there's, there's lots of really quite interesting um, narrative developments with when script meets UX and when storyboards and animatics meet script, and things like that. And, and I'm, in, I'm enjoying that work. Um, this slide effectively requires just, in order for us to execute our work, it has to be turn, what we call turnkey, so it has to be robust. And that's another problem that is plaguing the XR. You know, you can make a wonderful production, but if it fails on the first 20 people that have gone through, what, what are you going to do? The commission types of how we work. So how we get money in and how we make make the work. Well, as I've mentioned, we, we work commercially. Um, we work with cultural and arts institutions, so things like museums, uh, uh, festivals, uh, as well as... Um, as uh, other arts organisations, and then there's our self-initiated uh, MLF IP at the, uh, the bottom there. Now, in the commercial, well, you've you've seen uh, a few snippets, but these are the, these are the types of things we, we we tend to direct. They can be shows like the top left. Oops. Um, they can be uh, traditional films like uh, we we just. Animated and mycelia network as part of um, a film called fantastic fungi um, there can be traditional like commercials so fancy watches and um, uh, vitamin adverts and things like that as well as these kind of like e- the, the commercial sector is moving into XR as well so that bottom right is an example of us um, using the the em- Persuading the client to go down an XR route, and what that did was benefit us. They were really chuffed because they had something they they could document and put online, and and uh, in, and have lots of. They call them activations. So they they uh, approached their promotion of their vitamins in a, in a different way, uh, and what we gained from it was a better understanding of how we'd we'd go about. Approaching particle systems for the internet and, and fun things like that. Um, but in honesty, we don't really find the commercial sector that much fun. We also work in the music industry. Um, in in this case, using the real time so creative code to make environments like this stage. If if there was nobody on the stage, nothing would happen but we can plug in music, we could plug in, in this case, uh, we are tracking. We do lots of tracking of audience and people like that, making spaces interactive. Cultural arts, right. This is an example, in the eyes of the animal, of how we were approached by Abandoned Normal Devices, a festival. Abandoned Normal Devices is a really pioneering experimental festival uh, from Manchester and Liverpool and in, in the UK. And they approached us with space. At no point did they say, we want a VR experience. They said, we've got a forest. And Andy Goldsworthy exhibits in this forest, traditional sculptor. And theater performances are carried out in this forest. What do you want to do? Uh, They didn't have much budget. And originally, we were working, as we do all the time, I should have explained, all the time, Part of this double horse scenario we've we've got an r d process going on so a government funded r d as well as um com- there's always a commercial thing going on just uh, as a uh, as a means to survive um but in this case we were doing an r d project on drones and so initially in the eyes of the animal was <clears throat> a, a this, this was the initial idea. We had flying puppets, flying microphones, flying speakers, flying lights that would visit people as they went through a hike in the forest. So that's where initially we set out. But as it emerged, one of the flying things that we were looking at was a flying LiDAR system. And LiDAR is a, a architectural tool. You use it to scan Scan uh, environment. If you're going to build a bridge, whack out the lidar and it'll give you this really high definition 3D scan of a space. Now, from a uh, documentary setup, you know, you can scan all kinds of environments. And um, what we, our approach was to take this very sterile, super accurate scan down to sub millimeter accuracy of, of the forest and then abstract it. And through this, these techniques, we realized, well, you know, f- through different abstractions, we can tell a story. So we looked at the way, different sensory perspectives, basically. We looked at the uh, what it would be like to see that LIDAR scan as a midge, and then as a frog, and then as a, a dragon, sorry, a dragonfly, then a frog, and then an owl. And th- that was how we ended up developing in the eyes of the animal that had um, in, in, this was quite early in the VR it's kind of second wave. We Im- embedded the VR headsets into these, so they became a design piece as well. And visitors who stuck their heads inside became almost performers, part part of the overall uh, festival experience. The most engaging thing that we got out of this was when hikers who had no idea the festival was going on, would stumble upon these. that were dangling from a tree and wonder what on earth was going on. And and there you'd get your authentic um, feedback uh, about the the work. It looked like this inside. Um, And so we spent a lot of time working with um, scientists to understand how best we would treat the work, like a frog, for example mostly sees things moving horizontal so that was one of the focuses there and communicates through sound and it exposed loads of new opportunities of how to put people in 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 the perspective of of these animals and we've stuck with that and um the evolution of this particular project has really evolved we took it to sundance a big old bang of the drum there trying to meet new people we met lots of the xr scene where everyone at that particular time was just trying to make sense of what to do with these things and you saw a real spike in 360 films being made projects such as uh clouds over sidra Gabo aurora's work emerged and um Love them or hate them, the um, storytelling of those VR films, the 360 films, um, were really quite nice early examples of, of just rethinking how you could tell a story uh, in, in a so-called immersive setting. What we were doing was using other things like scent and touch at that time and thinking, geez, we can't put all our eggs in the VR basket because, as it's acknowledged, they're the segue for the face. They're slightly dorky. How do we get more people through? And so, In the Eyes of the Animal, it exists not only as a VR, but we've, we've projected it. Um, it. It tours as a uh, projected work um, that surrounds sound and, and uh, a full dome. We've ported it to all these different uh, types of um, display, uh, as a as a result of that initial body of work, and we had this kind of we have this master asset. I think one of the benefits, which is totally accidental, but we've stuck to it, is that that lidar scan gave us much higher resolution than we'd ever need for or, or that's possible to show in a VR headset. So we've still got this like hyper IMAX version of it waiting in the wings, ready for when the Technology matures. Um, it also exists as an app as well. And so, and, and we, we built a website. So, it's really at this point that we recognize that these are windows into different story worlds and that they can, much like computer games, uh, evolve. You know, you shoot a film, you lock it, you distribute it. That's it. In the case of XR, and in the case of what we're making, we create, we, we create an installation, we show it, visitors come, we go, oh my God, that failed, <laughs> we've got to fix it. Um, and, and so much like how computer games work, there's a launch and then there's this living adaptation as we hone it in and we're able to uh, refine it accordingly um, based on live user-generated feedback. And, and that I find really interesting because unlike a film model where there is a premiere and that is the big song and dance and, and that's where you bang the drum you still need to bang the drum but XR productions tend to mature the more they're out in the world because they've had more time to recognise we need to change the onboarding script or we need to um, shorten this particular scene because it just isn't working for the audience. And so they're adaptable, much like most things on the web. So, in summary, there was a commission, there's the live launch, then the touring of it, and then this living ecosystem. That's, uh, that's how we've been, we've been replicating this model ever since. In the case of <clears throat> a colossal wave... Again, a cultural institution. In this case, we were asked to create a gift for the city of Montreal. And so it was a really strange brief. What we ended up doing was working with a gallery where people sang at a sphere. And then down the road, people would congregate under these half spheres um, or umbrellas. And as people were singing in the gallery, these clusters of voice fruit would splash down all around them. And what we were exploring was effectively performance and and some kind of theatrical performance, but it was connected. And then a, a pageantry of a bowling ball was thrown from a great height, creating a colossal wave that raged over people's heads. Really... As a living ecosystem, it, it exists as a, a game, an AR app, as well as a touring uh, exhibition. But it was, uh, in terms of the brief, of course we weren't asked, do you want to make uh, uh, an experience where people th- 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 throw a bowling ball? It just emerged from the collaboration of, uh, uh, on the ground. And uh, so we were asking lots of questions effectively about how we can use the two... Spaces, so uh, a response, a site-specific response again. In a similar way, we we did this last year, which is a um, a light installation where we knew for sure that the bottleneck of getting um, people in VR headsets um, through just wasn't going to happen, and so we designed um, this a kinetic sculpture, um, at working with a musician called Erland Cooper, where lots of people could congregate underneath it, and um, the way that we developed this was in VR, and so we used the tools, and we used the 3D software um, to previs, in this case, but the output, there's a physical uh, manifestation of it in terms of this light installation. And so it really varies, but in the background there's this resource that we can draw on uh, from one project to the next Ooh, oh wow I think that might have just killed my uh, uh killed it oh there she blows um so the self-initiated IP and by the way there's 20 minutes left just to give you a breather and there's uh, I've put a few purple boards in as well, just for questions potentially. Um, so, this is what we're we're living for in in terms of uh, MLF. And one of the key questions that we're asking is, can we connect people uh, to nature through things like VR? Now, it's so preposterous in that using all this technology, you know, it's a very difficult challenge to. Um, approach an urban setting and say, "Hey, you should really consider the natural world." The, just to clear things up, in the eyes of the animal in its original setting in the forest, we, was magnificent. But most of the audience, uh, uh, we get we get to that audience through um, uh, through urban settings, and uh, th- and. You know, there's no question that the connection to the natural world is, is one that everyone is, is passionate about and, it, and feels as though they need to do something about it. But it's strange to use cover people in, in tech, in haptic backpacks and things like that. Um, and on the surface, it's, it's the very opposite of, of connecting people to the natural world. However, there's the, the effect emotionally uh, that we've seen on, on uh, audiences as people have engaged in in the work we start to um, latch onto that and and realize that uh, opening up conversations in urban settings is is really important and along with that apocalyptic messaging such as the world is on fire um, especially um, in an Australian um, a city that's been recently affected by uh, such h- horrific conditions, um, is that we feel driven to connect people uh, to the natural world. And we feel driven to expose the similarities, to expose the fact that we're living ecosystems as well. And things like VR have really enabled us to tell those stories. and and. Um, Bypass the eyeballs and, and look at how, as living organisms, uh, oxygen threat flows through our bodies, and how uh, CO two. Where does the human being begin and where does it end? And we've been marveling at these uh, uh, these stats and, and just fascinating aspects relating to uh, the way in which we are connected. Now. Um, As we as we go on, this leads to a project called Tree Hugger. Tree Hugger. um, Initially, we took to the Tribeca Film Festival, and we used a physical interface. And so, this was involving touch, scent, and 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 um, VR to take people uh, inside a giant sequoia and into the canopy. Um, We built a um, scent device. We developed a scent track. There's lots of questions about, you know, as you build a storyboard and an uh, an animatic, um, how do we build a scent track that runs in parallel? How do we deploy scent in the first place uh, to be meaningful to an audience who've got different relationships with those smells? And sensitivities as well. So there's lots of things that we learned from that. You know, kids have got such a higher sense of smell versus a You know, uh, 60-something-year-olds who smoked all their lives. And so learning about the sensitivities and personalization is a big part of the XR um, explorations that we've taken. Haptics as well. Using backpacks and wearables and and things like that. Incorporating wearables. Uh, In the case of In the Eyes of the Animal, we used this backpack to simulate having the feeling of dragonfly wings on your back. And it was just through R and D, but we discovered Jesus works really nicely. It, it really gives people um, a pleasant story to walk away with. You know that that bit when I had wings, and you're like, well, "That's wonderful." We're playing sub bass into someone's back as they see um, see a few images, and they walk away saying, "That bit when I had wings is." It is wonderful to, uh, f- for us, and, and um, it's, it signals. Oh, yeah, we can really explore that further. Um, this is an example of the full-fat IMAX, actually. So this is the original scan. We had we had to reach the aesthetic of uh, that pointillist graphic that you saw as a result of compromise. Th- this is the level of detail that, that we can get from a scan. And so, it's photorealistic, it's just um, uh, harbored at the moment by the, um, uh, by the VR headsets and graphics cards. Um, but there's just, it's a glimpse at what is on the horizon, and effectively, th- th- these, uh, this bit of moving image is enough to keep us in it, to... to um, not put the VR headsets down quite just yet and, th- and think, crikey, this, this is really going places as the fidelity in these headsets improves and become more cinematic. So We, we Live in an Ocean of Air is a project um, exploring um, where the human begins, where it ends, and, and it follows uh, the breath of a human being. It's a shared experience that we took to the Saatchi Gallery in London. We developed this emotional arc, a, a scent track. Um, we, we developed, we had the time, uh, we, we got investment to do it, and, and this is, was our like big gamble, basically. Um, it was designed to be uh, presented for uh, five weeks, and eventually uh, was uh, running for, uh, for five months at The Satchel Gallery. We had twenty-eight thousand people through, and they were um, they were bought a ticket, which, which was twenty pounds. I can tell you a li- little bit more about the problems with that in terms of barriers to audience um, as we as we go on. But it was presented like this. We involved projection, the silhouettes. If this, if you imagine there wasn't projection. Um, It would be a very dark and weird, squeaky place. Um, The the, the ways in which uh, people who visited the gallery experienced the work initially was through seeing this curious scene with people wafting their hands in the air. Um, Each bay would accommodate six people at a time. And much like the scent unit that you saw earlier, we had a heart rate monitor and a breath sensor. And you can see some of the human behavior um, that came from it. And that bit dangling down in front of the VR headset is the breath sensor. We were tracking people's hands. Inside, you saw your vascular system. And so what was lovely was we had stories of... um, delinquent teenage sons connecting with their parents for the first time um, in a long time because we were creating a piece in a gallery that they were they were the ones interested in the technology, um, but hopefully we were providing something that didn't involve dialogue, um, uh, just a small bit of onboarding at the start, and allowed people... Um, to ju- just lose themselves in a work and follow their own breath as it was absorbed into the vegetation around them. And eventually they're taken into the canopy of a giant sequoia. Now the interactive projection was, was a big thing. Um, the joining up of all the kind of technological um, instruments was key and, and, and we spent so much time just making it turnkey. That was, the majority of the work was, in fact, just making it robust so it could tour. Um, And it's touring still. And as the technology uh, evolves, the headsets are getting better and things like that, we tune it up as well. And and it's a big thing at the moment that we're, um, uh, we're madly trying to tour this. And I'll just take you through a few more. This this kind of just gives you an overview of all the tech. Now, it's important to say, like there's hand trackers on these, there's the heart rate monitor there, there's these clunky great big um, trackers that people wear on their wrists, and the backpacks that you can see. Now, we're acutely aware that all of that is going to disappear. And a problem for us, and we were having about two hundred and forty people through on a good day. And the problem was, we we didn't want to compromise on the human contact, the onboarding aspect at the um, at, at the start, which was so important. If if you just gave people the backpacks and the headsets and went on your way, uh, it just didn't work. And so we front loaded it with. Um, we front-loaded it with lots of human contact to make sure people were empowered. To give, in terms of the social contract, people were often blindfolded in a space where they were expected to walk around and breathe and then interact with their breath. Now, if you're an introvert, this, this is a really quite exposing thing to do. So there was lots of energy put into allowing people of all different behavioral traits to just get up and go for it and just lose themselves in the work. And And we did lots of research on, and, and the feedback was generally that it was quite meditative. And this was really important for us. And that, uh, but as a result, all these backpacks and things like that that I'm talking about, um, there was a kind of ritual to it as, as people were explaining how, how to work it. And when you hear a click, there's almost, it's part of the experience to um, show commitment that you're going on a, an adventure uh, of some sort. It, it was quite theatrical, and um, as we go on, I think that all of this technology is going to get much lighter, and and obviously we're going to be able to reach people's homes as well. Um, so that that was that, and and so the dolphins' dream in sonar is is something that. Um, it's just a question internally that, that cropped up after um, tree hugger, where we're like, so it wasn't in the, in the eyes of the animal, we were thinking about tree hugger, but this is one of the reasons why I like working at MLF, is that questions like this emerge where you're so entrenched in the different sensorial perspectives that it prompts these kind of thought processes that we wouldn't necessarily have had had we have not been just beavering away in in this weird niche. And um, I won't actually answer that question um, because it's slightly disappointing. They don't actually dream at all, dolphins. They're always half awake. Uh, uh, But... um, But regardless, it exposes, I think that those questions that emerge uh, from a creative studio are are small rewards and and they uh, reassure me that we're on the right track. And that leading to the final um, production that we're currently um, developing called Sweet Dreams, which it's multi-sensory, it involves food. And it has been an exploration into flavor perception. Um, we worked with uh, Heston Blumenthal, who fortunately in Australia, I think is known. You um, mentioned that to uh, anyone outside the UK and Australia that have no idea who it is. But it's a, it's a kind of gastro chef who um, is interested in flavor perception. And things like um, new challenges emerged for us like uh, com- these things like boober and kiki stuff if you serve uh, if you serve a, a dish on a boober shaped plate it's perceived as more alkaline than than if it was served on a kiki spiky shaped plate and so what happens then if a whole space is uh, Booba, in terms of virtual space? Or, uh, what does that do to your taste buds and your perception of what you uh, uh, of your surroundings? And what does a kiki-shaped um, environment look like? Can we animate that? Of course we can in VR. So there's lots of really quite interesting creative explorations to be had in, in this field. Um, and in parallel, on the R&D side, we're like, geez, we've done lots of human tracking, can we track candy floss? Um, uh, just imagine the stories you can tell around um, an edible cloud. And it turns out that it's blooming difficult to uh, track candy floss. And for the last three years, we've had a PhD student studying just that. Um, uh, Catherine Taylor at Bath University, who works at the uh, a, a department called Camera, the center of analysis of motion, is using machine learning to try and um, uh, soften the sharp edges associated with interaction. You know, all of us are familiar with swiping and clicking mice and touching trackpads, but it's all quite rigid stuff. What happens when interactive things are squidgy? Um, w- well, to some extent, this organic uh, is more familiar than, than, um, than the metallic or glass. And so, um, as you can see in that, that rubber ring, for example, sticking your head through a rubber ring can take, you to, it can take you to outer space. It can take you underwater. It can take you wherever you want to go. But the, the point is that we're starting to bring uh, deformable props into virtual spaces. And so you can make a theremin out of a palm tree, or you can make a, um, a giant straw that extends to, the, um, to space out of a pool noodle. And um, I don't know how well that is applied to documentary, but um, but it's an area that gives us really quite compelling. Um, levels of immersion, basically, it means that we can engage with audiences, and the suspension of disbelief is um, uh, is put to one side no sorry is the suspension of disbelief is reinforced as um, as people just lose themselves in the work um, and this r and d is is really getting serious We've, um, we 've we didn 't realize we 'd be as um, far along as, 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 as we are right now, which doesn't look like it from, from that example, but um, ev- every interaction we can use as an input, basically. And so it gives us an opportunity to meet digital humans, different puppets, um, and uh, effectively engage in new ways of, of communicating and new ways of storytelling. Because of course, people don't have to be in the same space anymore or they can be, um, but uh, they can be united, they can have individual experiences, they can have shared experiences. It's all to play for. Um, In the top left, you can see, this is using machine learning. We're predicting the squidging and unsquidging of that unicorn. And it might not look like much, but it's a glimpse at using machine learning. It it helps... um, make things work quicker and, and um, it makes uh, the possibility of bringing food inside VR that much more tangible. And that's what we did with um, Sweet Dreams and are doing with Sweet Dreams. Whoop, let's see, is that gonna, yeah. And so what we're looking at is effectively being able to engage, in audi- engage audiences in ways that are using all the sensors, Not sensors for sensors sake or tech for tech's sake the the point is that we have to be really sensitive to how to tune them in a way it might just need that that nuanced amount of vibration from a haptic uh, uh, bit of tech or it it might need just a hint of a scent of violet or um, uh, in terms of text sorry textures the prospect of telling a story through uh, through the fingers—if if something is uh, soft and fuzzy, then is is cold and marble—you know already you're you're telling a story through through the fingertips, and if if that corresponds to what you're seeing, um, then there's a new area to, exp- to to basically lift how we communicate anyway on a day-to-day basis and port it into a, a, a virtual setting. Um, and so taste, we recognized, and deformable objects, we recognized as um, as two ways of, of engaging people that much more. It comes with a whole truckload of other problems in terms of the turnkey stuff, the uh, hygiene, <laughs> um, uh, uh, things like that. And how, how do you uh, make a... a Project Turnkey that involves food, you have to have a whole catering unit as well as the tech unit, and um, you know, is it all like Pez dispensers? Like uh, you have to really think about how um, the how the material is presented. But in the case of Sweet Dreams, we're telling an important story inspired by Shark Fin Soup. Um, it's a, a story themed on the debt to desire, wrapped in this kind of candy. Candy coat um, uh, wrapper, um, and it's presented in a uh, in, in a venue where you walk, but you, you don't only really walk. Um, you you sit, you interact with objects, and um, and and you taste things as well. And let me get onto. And we developed a script with Simon Rowe, who's a pen and ink author. Who then uh, we've worked with the BFI to. Effectively, the, the, the three entities are collaborating to create a story world called Luscious Delicious Land where um, where the, the theme of the de- to desire is explored. Um, what we learn is that the onboarding element it involves a, um, um, a live actor that is then featured in a virtual setting as well. But the live actor serves as the onboarding element um, uh, human being that the, the human uh, being that effectively is the full social contract broker the, the human being there's physical contact there's um, there's empowerment and there's all kinds of things that go uh, go on within the script to encourage and to determine what kind of person we're dealing with at any given time to make sure that they are uh, uh, confident enough to walk around on a squidgy floor and eat and drink uh, when they 're blindfolded um, whoop. and so uh, this is this is a clip of 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 how the character Lonnie um, pops in, but um, in the case of sweet dreams, people don 't see the environment that they 're then going to be walking around um, now we 've learned a major problem with this at the moment, and it's something that we're battling, is story traction. And that when you're, um, when you're engaging in uh, this multisensory, when you're tasting something with popping candy in your mouth, you're blindfolded and there's music playing, in order to build any kind of character or give any kind of sense of narrative through dialogue, it's incredibly hard when your limbic system kicks in and you're just like, hang on a minute, I just need to get my balance and I've got to work out what on earth is going on uh, with this popping candy. That, you know, people, it's a major surprise for them. And so, it's just been fascinating how the human brain works in these settings. And it's also been interesting observing the different human behavior um, when they're engaging in this kind of space. And so, yeah, there's, there's, um, there's a, a soft floor underfoot it feels like a bed. Uh, there's a rice paper petal that you can see we've created all, the, all those buttons in the background are, are cues that trigger various scenes or if someone's left handed, bing, we press the left hand button and bing, we press eat, the blue button when someone's e- eaten the device. So it's really, in the background, it's really techy. Um, but in the experience, we just striving to make it as fluid as humanly possible and, and organic. And um, so that gives you a sense of the floor. You can see we're tracking people's feet as well, so for every step there are ripples in, in the floor. And this is, uh, again, we'll look back nostalgically at these kind of dorky bits of tech when the the tracking area is improving all the time. And... Um, and that means that we're able to allow people to interact with the environments uh, in much more compelling ways. We can turn the squidgy floor into a physical interface, much like the tree hugger uh, physical interface when people were touching it. Um, and what can you do? Well, you can do all kinds of things with that. It's just, really, it's how do you want to do it in, in, in the way that gets the best effect. Uh, in these cases, on, on the right-hand side, people... Uh, so you, you drink from a straw, and the walls close in, so there 's new examples of there 's a like electronic weighing scale inside that cup, and when you suck <coughs> the, the walls close in, and the painting in front of you gets that much closer and so playing with the volume in your mouth as, um, as well as uh, the, the volume of the physical space like we, we haven 't really been able to do that um, um, in the past, and on the left. This is a person drinking the sun out of the universe, and so drinking something that appears to be the size of a, an oil tanker um, uh, that's going into your tummy, and it's just it brings up lots of questions about embodiment, about how as human beings we engage with the world as well. It's, it's fascinating that even when people put a VR headset on and look down and they don't have hands, that that we just deem that as like, oh, right, I'll just go with the flow. Why, why, do, why is that? Why, um, well, it, lo, there's lots of conversations around the dream world and, and the, uh, how we process visual information. But I find it fascinating. There's a whole swathe of conversations to be had around um, the relationship of moving image and dreams. But people like Walter murch 's um, in the Blink of an Eye is a really interesting um, book on editing and uh, Walter Murch touches upon the natural world and um, he also uh, talks about um, why film works in the first place. Why is it that we sit and see an establishing shot and then cut to an interior and it makes sense. It's not our lived experience of, of, of how we take in the world but he, he looks at, at uh, the dream world as a, um, a way of rationalizing why why film works. Well, why VR works is is equally as um, curious. Um, oh, this is the uh, um, the, the slurp into luscious, delicious land, a little fly-through. Um, and these are the invigilator um, uh, systems. So deformable objects. These, like, uh, there was... The dishes were pig from far away and a thousand lobsters squeezed into a single shot, ground unicorn horn, and um, my favorite was foie gras of even-toed ungulate, which was um, um, best eaten from the live beast, which effectively is giraffe liver. (laughs) But um, uh, the idea was that we developed branching narratives of each of the dishes so um, effectively, there's an incentive to revisit. And so someone may have had lobster and, uh, and unicorn, but their friend may have had pig and giraffe, and, uh, and, and so there's an exchange post-experience to say, geez, well, I'll, I'll go back and try those dishes next time. There's also the, uh, um, the prospect of being able to um, add more dishes, add more stories into the, into the mix. So, I think that's it. In closing, the audiences of the Future Project is what I'm on with right now, um, which is this gargantuan collaboration with all kinds of different creative um, practitioners from theater predominantly. But uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company, Punch Drunk, who do immersive theater, as well as the Philharmonia Orchestra, and then a, a, like a mass of tech um, entities like Magic Leap and um, Epic who uh, make Fortnite and, uh, on, uh, and they make Unreal Engine. Um, and what we're doing is um, collaborating, um, uh, driven to create a demonstrator that is another step, or hopefully a positive step in the story of XR um, that will expose some new multi-century um, processional uh, live uh, experiences uh, but a story world as well F- Right, thank you very much for listening, that was a good one hour, six minutes um, and I think we're just going to have a few questions and that and uh, yeah, I just really appreciate being here and uh, thanks for your um, uh thanks for, for your attention as I've gone through th- this uh, zigzagging journey.
0: Thank you so much, Robin. I'll um, let him settle in and um, have a drink of water <laughs> after talking for so long. Um, I have got a million questions of my own, so I'm going to quickly try and get um, some of your questions up. Um, has anyone added a question to the app yes no okay that's why I can't see any all right
1: it's often the case
0: (laughs) we do actually have some some mics that we might swing around a little bit later on depending how we go for time we've only got um, about 10 minutes I think so um So thanks Robin. I I wanted to kind of pick up on some of the things that you you started off saying in your introduction, kind of in the context of the documentary audience that we have here today. Um, I think one of your comments was that you stand aside from traditional documentary and then you went on to talk a lot about um, liveness being a really important aspect of your work. Um, In terms of documentary making, do you think there's something about offering a live and in in your work a real-time experience? as a documentary changes or offers something new to this project that we're all kind of engaged in, the documentary project, offering yeah. documentary truth?
1: I, I, I find it really exciting to think that a documentary maker would use the, a live experiential setting to present their work and their story. Their story. Um, and I think that the opportunity to reach new audiences, uh, the, uh, the chances to create new angles on communicating and presenting different perspe- human perspectives different um, angles and just engaging with audiences in a way that in, in a non-traditional way I think it's a really nice challenge for people to um, uh, to explore
0: mm. so then. Maybe turning a bit to the, to, the, to the role of the audience, I think we're kind of... Um, I'm wondering if it's important to you that, that we kind of, when we're working in this space, that we sort of redefine audiences a little bit. Do you think of them as, as uh, performers? Do you think of them as co-creators or collaborators? I mean, who do you think of as the audience? Because it seems to me that you've got kind of a variety of audiences in your yeah. work, in particular. you've got the person who's mm-hmm. in the headset or, in, you know... Is, is making the experience unfold, mm-hmm. but then you've also got the people who are watching them and, and, mm-hmm. and there are kind of various levels. What do you...
1: Yeah, I, I think that the, the audience is maturing in that there's public spaces, venues, that are accommodating this work mm. and more increasingly more venues, whether they're museums or galleries or theatres or other bespoke cultural spaces, are presenting work. Um, From the XR scene, um, and so often they're in found spaces as well. That, um, on the one hand, presents gateways in uh, for audiences. Uh, I'd be excited to see, uh, you know, commissions for uh, 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 cinemas are also accommodating Mm. XR work as well. So that's in terms of the audience there's there's a role of the actual venue and i think that that is crystallizing um as you know uh, as in real time really in front of us Mm. uh but in addition to that there's online gateways there's app-based gateways there's in terms of digital culture there's there's a a multitude of of windows in of of how to um, entice people into the story world and opportunities, again, for this story world to exist in a live setting as well as a a virtual setting. Mm. So it's slightly complicated as things crystallize, but the opportunities are there. And it's, it's interesting how Um, It can be quite an indie operation to reach audiences. um, And it can be quite niche, it can get leverage from things like social media and so on. Mm. Um, So it's it's generally quite fun operating in in a scene that is still crystallizing, because there's the opportunity to have a voice in how it's actually um, established as well.
0: Yeah. And then, I mean, it, you are right that, that that sometimes it can be quite indie. But for in your case, in, in MLF's case, it's an indie operation working with the Saatchi Gallery. <laughs> so, um, so how did that conversation um, come about? How did you enlist them in 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 the creation of that work and in the presentation? And 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 what are the kind of opportunities for organisations like Saatchi or, or or institutions like that to kind of to to be present in this, in this conversation.
1: Yeah, it was, it was really high risk on the Saatchi side to t- take on a digital work, because, generally, artworks that are made with computers fall into an incredibly niche category I- in the art scene, mm-hmm. especially for an entity like MLF, who are not deemed as artists in the traditional sense because we do adverts and we do... Uh, work in galleries, sorry, museums, and not just specifically galleries, and we're not kind of towing the gallerist line and uh, towing that narrative. Um, So it was a big challenge to convince them uh, to take on the work, to broker some kind of um, deal on the the tickets, and we were absolutely, majorly relieved when, we managed to get audiences through, and that there was um, what we suspected: there was an audience interest, mm. and the audience were uh, generally from um, a, a mixed background, and lots of those visitors weren't uh, in any way comfortable with visiting galleries, so 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 it was the first time they'd been into the gallery space, which obviously it was a really good story for the gallery. Mm. Um, but initially, the way in which we got into the conversation with the Saatchi Gallery was through the Tribeca Festival and through various contacts and word of mouth. And so it just works in a weird way in that um, we're incredibly opportunistic and, um, and we take lots of risks as well. And so the... Ocean of Air was an incredibly high risk financially um, because of all the equipment and things like that. But as a result of making it and the strategy for touring it and then kind of cementing relationships with the hardware partners and things like that, it it gets traction once you've got a um, a piece, a showcase piece that clearly communicates what what it was that we wanted to do. Mm-hmm.
0: So we 've got some questions from the audience um, I have to only read the short questions because I think the, the longer ones are not showing their full the full, um, the full sentence so I think we've got one that says, "How do you feel these new mediums can serve, can serve to engage audiences which we, kind of reflects what you're just saying about Sachi new audiences as well
1: yeah. There's an initial kind of tech curiosity, which we try and get over that hump very quickly, and actually engage in the content itself. And and so we we know for certain that that the level of engagement, if people lose themselves in the work, that there's a really you can just sense it. There's a gut feeling, and a very you can very quickly understand if if. If visitors have actually enjoyed the work or not, mm-hmm. and uh, we we tune the work that way and do a lot of user testing beforehand.
0: Yeah. Um. I kind of want to um, to sort of exp- unpack that a bit further on, on a broad level. Um, I think there's something that that you've tapped into that his audience is really craving or or um, responding very enthusiastically to this kind of new wave of immersive story experiences, and I'm wondering what you see as the driver of that kind of on a, on a social level. Um, it's easy to say interest in technology, But when you look at work like Punchdrunk, they don't have a very visible tech layer. So Punchdrunk is an immersive theatre company, for those of you who don't know, who do these kind of amazing, you know, warehouse level um, story experiences. What do you think people are responding to or looking for when they come to these these immersive story worlds at the moment?
1: I think there's a real mixture. I think that, like I mentioned, there's so much available at home these days that, People are looking for like social kicks, um, for something new that jolts them out of their daily routine. Um, but also, I, I think there is a there is still a kind of tech zeitgeisty aspect that we use as bait, basically, um, to lure people in and then tell a different story. Yeah,
0: and and then. I'm interested then in the genesis of your work as well. So um, you did explore this a little bit in your talk, but you've got these kind of different layers of, of, um, of inspiration. Um, your, your work is very narrative. It's also very data-driven. It's also very research-heavy, um, and it's technically innovative. Are you thinking about any of these more than the other when you, when you have the very initial seeds of an idea?
1: Generally, we're looking at incredibly basic um, levels of satisfaction, and um, I think that it's it's hard to put a finger on what we're um, w- without sounding naff. The, the, there's an aspect of wonderment and otherworldliness that you can tune into that we've realised that the immersive sector really allows us to explore that. It's non-violent, it is, uh, um, anyone can access it, and I think that it's these kind of aspects that unite people that we're interested in.
0: Fantastic. I want to just do one more question, um, and then I think we might have run out of time. Um, This is one from the audience. Uh, What advice would you give XR Studios in creating what I believe the end of this sentence is going to be a sustainable business model um, I can only see sustain <laughs>
1: um, um, I think it's a, a, tr- a tricky it's in terms of sustainable business models as you've seen in our work it's quite um, it's varied in terms of really clever producers that are traversing um, the we're lucky in the UK to have some cultural funding, um, as well as uh, funds from the private sector as well. And it's a real balance. And to, s- to sustain a business that gen- generally requires the retention of highly skilled individuals, like creative coders, they're few and far between. Most people that are working in the games industry are trained specifically to go into the games industry. So there's real problems in terms of a sustainable business when you're engaging with these superstar coders who want to be working in the games world. To entice them into the XR camp is is a a tough ask. Um, And therefore you have to pay a fortune uh, in freelance rates. Um, But also there's, I think, there's an emergence of, uh, as XR develops, there's an infrastructure of new talent emerging through, uh, we work with the the Interactive Architecture Lab in London, um, who, uh, the the brains that are emerging from uh, that particular school of thought are different to those who've trained in, in gaming. And so, in terms of sustainable business models, there's, um, latching onto existing industries and using talent from those, from the film industry, as I mentioned, um, lots of our team are, are from, but also incorporating new. And um, with that talent in-house, generally, uh, we we just have to make it work in, in a way that allows us to... Um, Gives us financial buffers to take the risks. And, and that is not easy in any way. You have to be... a whole team are, are, like, passionately dedicated. And um, and it, it's incredibly difficult to, to sustain it. I not, for a minute, trick people into saying, oh, it's easy-peasy, it's a booming industry, and you can retire when you're 43. Because that is not going to happen. It's a labour of love. Um, and... Um, there's a trajectory on um, the production values and there's other ways of, of being rewarded from it. Mm-hmm. That, um, From our perspective, we're very sensitive to the financial operations and are driven to make it work. That's why we work commercially. Um, ideally, of course, we would just cut that out, but it, it just seems like it's a, a useful, uh, realistic approach to dealing with all this kind of expensive tech.
0: Okay. Well, look. I hope that you continue to, to make it work. Um, we're really privileged to have you here. Thank you so much for for sharing your experiences with oh, us.
1: thanks a lot. And if th- thank you, very kind. Nice to be here.